3: Hey, this is AJ Delario, and this is Really Good Shares. In this podcast, I want to expand the definition of recovery and talk with people I want to learn from, all who have valuable insights into how to get better, even if they haven't figured it all out. You'll hear a mix of interviews and storytelling contributions, and also the music. It's done by legendary soul singer, Swamp Dog. And you'll hear my dog, Nesta, licking a plate in the back. See? Today's episode is about how to take care of the drug addict closest to you, how to let them go, how to grieve, and how to deal with a famous person who won't stop drinking because they're not used to people telling them no. Our guest is interventionist, sober companion, harm reduction advocate, and social worker, Joe Schrank. In 2015, when I was dragging my feet to pick a rehab to enter for substance misuse problems, I got in touch with my friend, Mayer. Uh, he was also in the media industry like me, and like me, had a serious alcohol problem. Mayer went to rehab, got sober, and knew many people who could help me. But because I was an extra special person who needed coddling and applause, I wanted VIP treatment, even though I was not a VIP. But to oblige my dumb request, Mayer suggested I talk to his friend, Joe. Joe had worked with Courtney Love, he said. That's the guy I needed to talk to. That was the level that I was expecting. So when I called him, I had already spoken to a couple of reps at other facilities, and they were kind-hearted and empathetic, conveying an urgency about my disease that made me feel special. Some even offered me scholarships to attend their fancy state-of-the-art treatment centers. Ones with beachfront accommodations and horseback rides and archery and other fun activities I'd never do anywhere but rehab. I called him immediately and told him what I needed and my issues and how bad I felt. And Joe sort of sighed and tuned me out and wasn't too concerned about my well-being. Nor did he think my alcohol and drug use was all that impressive. He did not make me feel like a VIP. He actually made me feel worse than I already did. Or rather, not that important. But he still said he'd help me find a rehab if I really wanted to, but he wasn't too big on that route. He would tell me later that America suffers from a rehab industrial complex and that it's stupid to go to rehab more than one time or spend so much money since it sounded like my problem would be better served just going to AA. Here's Joe.
2: The truth is, from a data analysis, it's massively ineffective, your chances are actually greater of getting into Stanford or Harvard than doing well in the rehab business. You know, we sell this idea that you're going to go to rehab, never drink again, and then become a counselor at the rehab. That's unbelievably rare, the vast majority of people do not do well like that. And I think that the basic problem is that we say addiction is a disease, but we don't treat people like patients. If it's a disease, then treat it like a disease. Yelling at people is not treatment for a disease. Judging people is not treatment for a disease. There isn't one way to address any disease. Like an oncologist couldn't say, well, my tumor responded to radiation, so you can only do radiation. In fact, we're not even going to bring up other options. That's just a very low standard of care.
3: After I got off the phone with him, I was very sure I never wanted help from that grumpy ass. Still, I kept his phone number. I saved him as Joe Dick. A Couple years later, Joe and I crossed paths again. I was about to do a story on a new rehab facility he was working at that, now I'm not kidding here, used weed as a means of helping heroin and opioid addicts. The Place was called High Sobriety. It was a little controversial, a little crazy, but that's how Joe operates. He's worked in the recovery space for close to 30 years and knows that there's no surefire way to cure people. This wasn't just done for publicity. Joe's rationale for this new approach for harm reduction was no one died smoking weed. And he thought it was a better alternative than subjecting heroin users to the dull shock of total abstinence. The facility failed, but it was worth a try. Good news is Joe doesn't enjoy working in, and especially for, treatment facilities. He thinks his particular skill set is more useful on a one-on-one level. And it's not hyperbole to suggest that he may be the last line of defense between life or death.
2: I've been to weddings of kids I swore were just goners, and I've been to funerals of kids I thought that were doing well. I've given up trying to predict. Look, I feel best in a crisis. Mm -hmm. Good, bad, right, wrong, whatever it is, I feel best when the shit is hitting the fan.
3: Joe's preferred client is anyone under 30, but over 20. He says he uses a Robin Hood approach to his sober companionship, but he doesn't like that he has to take on millionaire clients in order to pay his own bills, but the wealthier clients also allow him to link up with those who can't afford to pay a high hourly rate for his services. Like I said earlier, I thought thought Joe was a real dick when I first spoke to him, but after I interviewed him for the high sobriety story, I began to warm to him a bit. I loved his ideas and his expertise, and I said to him that if I ever got a chance to build a media site again, he'd be the first guy I talked to. A year later, I got a grant to start The Small Bow, and Joe was the first person I hired. And I finally got a chance to meet him in person. I mean, he's a giant man. He's the size of a refrigerator. He could probably tear a truck tire in half. He's kind of obnoxious, a little off-putting, but he's also devoted his life to making it easier for people with drug and alcohol issues to get better. We did a semi-regular column together called I'll Ask Joe, where I asked questions about a certain topic and he responded in his usual gruff, but articulate way. Here's an example. Q, what does drink responsibly even mean? So drinking responsibly
2: certainly means designate a driver. That's what we're always told. What it doesn't seem to mean, at least according to the alcohol industry and the culture, is to consider a safer form of intoxication. Or, hey, how about you not get fucked up and just sort of see the beauty of the world around you for once?
3: Q, what would you put on the label of a bottle of booze?
2: I think an easy way to start waking people up and waking the culture up a bit would be better warning labels. Or warning labels in general. There aren't really warning labels. But what if a bottle of vodka had a picture of... A liver in end stages of cirrhosis, or use of this product increases rape, suicide, certain cancers, and can cause all sorts of heartache for your family and the community. And the one that I always think is causes extreme stupidity in men under 30. That's another thing that we could put on bottles of liquor.
3: See, a unique approach. As I said earlier, many of Joe's clients are either very wealthy or a little bit famous, but he doesn't get starstruck at all. Take, for example, his relationship with Kristen Johnston, who was a two-time Emmy Award-winning actress for her role in the NBC comedy, Third Art from the Sun. And more recently, she was on the CBS comedy, Mom. Kristen had her own struggles with alcohol and drugs for many years. She even wrote a memoir about her experience called Guts, which became a bestseller. But when she got out of rehab, She was kind of lost. She didn't know anyone sober. And that's when she met Joe.
1: So I called him up. I was in uh, Sober Living at the time. And I called him up, and he was. I was like, hey, you know, I don't know anybody sober in New York. And he was like, okay, I'll, I'll hang out with you. I'll take you to a couple meetings. And he was like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm an actress. He's like, are you famous? And I was like, yeah, I guess I'm pretty famous. And he was like, What show are you on? And I said, well, I was, just finished a show called Third Rock from the Sun. And he goes, oh, no, I don't know. I only know shows from the 70s. So he was like... So if you were on, like, the love boat, that would have been really cool. (laughs) Anyway, so um, I came back from the Meadows, and he, we just instantly jammed. Like, he was so cynical and, like, not kissy-assy and just really dry and no bullshit. And he took me to my very first N.A. meeting. So it was a big deal for me.
3: Kristen saw the friendly side of Joe but he's also no-nonsense when it comes to letting people, even world-famous people, understand how dire their circumstances are. Like Joe did not hold back when he was giving a very famous actor some tough love, should we call it.
2: By the way, I set a boundary with I was like, dude, be fat or do coke. you're You're gonna kill yourself, like, choose one. Choose fat or coke. Fuck, man, you can't do both and live.
3: Sometimes people take the initiative and get sober, but that's usually not the case. I actually met up with Joe to meet one of his celebrity clients one time. Joe was taking his fairly well-known client to the Chateau Marmont, where they were set to stay for a couple days. The client was cordoned off in one of the spooky bungalows up top. Joe was in one of the civilian rooms in the main hotel wing. should be noted that the client was extremely wealthy, the kind of wealth that could buy moon real estate or hire Beyonce to play his kid's preschool graduation party. So Joe's room and all of his meals and whatever else he needed were always paid for. But the client was also drinking himself to death. Family hired Joe to help or at least not let him die. Now, Joe's don't die strategy was to have the client stick to beer and not vodka. Also, Joe carried a bag full of weed gummies with him, which he dispensed to the client once the cutoff point happened. I think that was around 10 beers he was allocated. So this was the type of harm reduction millions of dollars could afford. I mean, it was incredible to watch. The client was extremely charming, but also very, very sick. He drank through his beer ration after about an hour, and then Joe shot the bag of gummies over to him across the table before the client could wander off and get himself into trouble. So client reluctantly took the several of the gummies and within 20 minutes, he was ready to head back up to his room and go to bed, but he didn't make it unscathed, tried to make his way back to his room, but he fell into this row of manicured bushes surrounding the poolside. It was hard to watch. I described this scene to Kristen and she said it sounded very familiar to her.
1: Look, if we could all remain as charming and fabulous as we are at two beers, then we probably wouldn't have stopped drinking. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's just, unfortunately, there always always uh. that Bush's moment.
3: This man is no longer a client anymore. He's still alive, though. Joe's relationships with his high-profile clients are usually business only, and as Kristen assessed earlier, Joe doesn't get starstruck too much. He's focused mainly on keeping his clients alive. So he's a big proponent of harm reduction. But he developed a special bond to one person, comedian Greg Giraldo. Now, Greg wasn't exactly a household name, but he was well respected in the comic community. And he had a brash and sometimes very off-putting style. He was a regular on Comedy Central Celebrity Roast, and he was always one of the funniest guys, but he was also one of the cruelest.
1: Sir, look at this pack of slobs up here. Gary Busey's here, kind of. How about Gary? Yeah! Gary, I guess, flew in from Lobotomy Island. Jesus, Gary, you horse-faced lunatic. You look like, you look like Nick Nolte f***ed the Clydesdale.
3: <laughs> Greg was also extremely smart, almost preternaturally so. He was a Harvard man, after all. But Greg was also a chronic drug and alcohol relapser, and he had a dangerous pill habit. And Joe, well, he and Joe's relationship morphed into a friendship real quickly. But unlike the client who fell in the bushes, Greg didn't survive.
2: I'm haunted by his death because we had such a close personal relationship, right? Because it it, it left me um, as very butch without Sundance. Like, it left me disoriented now for a decade. Um, You know, (laughs) so... Yes, I'm haunted by his death. And I guess there is an aspect of it where it was like, fuck, man, did it really happen? Because we kept saying, Greg, you're going to kill yourself. Greg, you're going to kill yourself. This This is not sustainable. And then when it actually happens, it's so jarring and so disorienting. And there are such long term effects of it. I was his sponsor in AA. This family has no reservations about the story being told. Um, And then I would travel with him when he was on the road. And then it kind of grew into this thing where Comedy Central would want me to be with him because things would tend to go better when I was there. Um, He wouldn't disappear. There was a lot of things that didn't happen. So it sort of became like an organic relationship and a friendship, and a client, and then we both were getting divorced. So we ended up living in my 500 square foot village apartment. So it was like this really weird bipolar alcoholic odd couple scenario of these two dudes. Living, like, and we all had, we had little kids at that point. I mean, that was chaos when uh, you know visitation day would roll around. Um, And then we just kind of lost control of it. And, you know, he just started getting crazier and crazier. And then I knew him, you know, at the Comedy Cellar, which is kind of this famous New York comedy club, Um, was right around the corner from my house. So, And Greg liked to call me and ask for help by not asking for help. So, (laughs) which was always, you know, you would say, well, uh, what are you doing? Oh, you probably don't want to come over to the comedy club right now. Because you know, I, I, it's late. I know you probably don't want to come over here. And I'd be like, all right, well, I'll walk the four blocks, Greg. What's going on? Um, so that was, you know, I mean, it just kind of gained this inertia and this momentum.
1: When Greg finally died, um you know, from an outsider's perspective who went with him to the funeral and tried to sort of help him through that. It was so painful to see because I think Joe took it, and he's never said this to me, but I think he took it as a personal failure as anybody who loses a loved one to addiction probably does. You know, it's like, did you do everything? Did you, what else could you have done? And um, I know it has, you know, it really devastated him.
3: I've always been struck by Joe's emotional connection to Greg. It's, it's definitely unique, but it's a side to him that always breaks my heart a bit. I think it's important to show that part of him too, because it's what makes him good at his job. And even when hard things like losing Greg happen, and Joe sticks around. And I wanted him to tell us about the day Greg died. So now here's Joe Schrank's really good chair.
2: For a while, I'd known we were in trouble. The progression of the pathology, the spiritual malady, whatever you want to call it, was becoming more and more pronounced. The rationalizations were getting weaker and more obscure. Greg was pulling away. He was spending less and less time focused on his recovery and his art. Whenever I would see my phone flash his name, I'd sigh a sense of relief because I thought it meant that he wasn't dead. One time the phone flashed Greg, and I picked it up. Thankfully, he was alive, but he was clearly out of it. I'm sure you're busy. Uh, never mind. It's okay. Well, uh, is there any way you want to drive me down to Philly? I have a gig, and and, and I shouldn't drive. He said in that very nasally tone of somebody who had been doing cocaine. Where are you, I said. Let me get my car out. Can you take the subway downtown? We met at the neighborhood garage in the West Village, and off we went. Greg was in and out of coherence, napping or passing out. He'd wake up every now and then and repeat the same story he had just told me before his last nap. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Gerardo! Wow! Man, is- The show went fine, per usual. He had his audience where he wanted them. And they loved. Him.
1: You know, they say that sex addiction is as bad as alcoholism or drug addiction. That's what they say. And I don't know, because I've been addicted to a lot of things, and I just can't imagine that you suffer as much with sex addiction <laughs> as you do. As you do with the end stages of other addictions, you know. I can't imagine uh, that there's ever been a sex addict that's so sex addicted that, you know, you end up curled up in a fetal position on the floor of your living room sweating and crying because you haven't slept in six days. <laughs>
2: After the show, I batted away the usual invitations to party and off we went back to Manhattan. I had made so many of these pickups with Greg, but this one just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like the other times. It felt darker, it felt different, more cute, less related to all his other neuroses and addictions. Greg never really got mad at me, except on that ride home from Philly, when he said his wife had kicked him out of a parent-teacher conference. She said I smelled like booze, which was bullshit. It had been at least a few hours since I had a drink. Wow, I said, Marianne is such a huge bitch. What was she thinking? The usual snark peppered with the truth wasn't met with the usual laugh. It was met with pouting and an unfamiliar tension. And I knew we were in trouble. 2010, I was working closely with Oasis, the governing body for addiction services in New York State. It took a while, but I came up with an afternoon program to celebrate Recovery Month at Randall's Island. Simon Kirk, legendary drummer of Bad Company, and Courtney Love agreed to do an acoustic set for a small group, and Greg agreed to do a quick set and introduce Courtney and Simon. I thought I could get some media attention, plus I thought this would be fun. The month before the event, I was scheduled to be in London for another sober companion gig, and it was an uneasy feeling leaving Craig. We stayed in touch with the usual adolescent banter, pictures of mullets and jorts, dick jokes. But he wouldn't really answer any questions about his recovery or what he was up to. You know, I said, I'm going to have to stop rescuing you or I'm going to have to take up Needlepoint and go to Al-Anon. I never really did try to stop rescuing. A big recovery rally day arrived and knowing Courtney as I do, I knew my top priority was to be the Courtney Wrangler and make sure she showed up on time. She said she was ready. Simon was ready. There was a car waiting for them at the Mercer Hotel in Soho. I loaded up with caffeine and I headed downtown to manage the unmanageable. I was hours early and greeted by Simon in the lobby. I went to the desk and asked for them to call up to Courtney's room. They said to go on up. She was waiting for me. I love when I'm wrong. This is going so well, I thought. She opened the door, stark naked, and said, get the fuck in here. So I ended up sitting on her hotel bed watching Sports Center and half listening to her ramble on while having her hair done. But then I received a text from Greg. I'm really fucked up. I can't make it. There were still a few hours before the show was set to start. Maybe he can still make it, I thought. So the rest of us got to Randall's Island, and the show was a huge success. Courtney was empathic, she was open, she took pictures with a young fan and told him to stay sober. She shared openly about Kurt and his struggles. She talked about her own struggles. Simon Kirk talked about the trauma of finding one of his bandmates from Bad Company dead on the bus. It was a huge success. At least I thought it was. But a few hours later, after the show, I got a call from Greg's manager. He always called me when Greg was in an airport or needed me to go with him to East Jesus, Ohio, or whatever. I picked up He was breathless and said I need you to come to the hospital in Jersey. Is he dead? Not yet. He was on life support. Three days later, I sat in the hospital room with Greg's brother and sister. His mother sat silently in the corner. And the doctor came in and explained that she felt comfortable and confident, medically and ethically, to stop life support. The decision was made and she cautioned it could take a few days for all vital organs to stop function, but assured us all that he was in no discomfort. My recovery has never been the same. I'm not sure I've ever been the same. The funeral was a blur of A-list comedy royalty acting shocked and attempting to console me. Can you believe this happened? A tearful Jeff Ross asked me. I can. It's shocking and it's jarring, but it's not surprising. Somehow I got through my eulogy. Colin Quinn spoke after I did and he said, it's a testament to Greg when an NFL lineman-sized social worker talks about him while crying into an iPad. The congregants all laughed, but it was that kind of laugh that is paper-thin distance from crying. Ultimately, Greg's death has been nothing short of horrible. It's been a long time, and it's still Butch without Sundance. Every birthday is that razor sadness that cuts through the normalizing of his absence. Watching one of his sons graduate this year and head off to Tufts in the fall was great, but also not. Two of his boys now work at comedy clubs. They have moved forward and they have done remarkably well. There have been more overdoses in my world, more deaths, and it's always horrible, but none so profound as Greg's. Walking through life, there are few fellow travelers crossing our paths with lasting impact. It's one of the issues with being a depressed alcoholic. Finding connections is rare. It's hard. It's like a truly great quarterback. One just doesn't come along all that often.
3: What was the longest amount of time that he had sober? Over a year. Okay. You know,
2: at one point there was a year. Even when people gain that kind of time, that doesn't necessarily mean they're out of the woods, but it does help in terms of comparison and contrasting. Right? Like, okay, so let's see what happened in that year. Marianne let you move home. You got a Comedy Central special. Something happened. Like your booking started, you know, everything started getting better and better and better. Um, you know, what is the common denominator here? The common denominator is that you're not using, Greg. Right? That, you know, we're, you're doing the shows and that's it. Thank you very much. Here's your CD. Um, thanks for coming. And, you know, not going out with these people after the show, that was always a disaster. The world's not changing for people who need to be so just isn't right there's going to be champagne toasts at weddings and there's booze everywhere in America and there's going to be people using and so the, the onus of that is never on the world it's always on the individual could Greg have formed a, a sober road gang for sure you know that could have happened um, is the road a really difficult place to stay sober oh yeah oh for sure and especially comedy clubs I think that might be the Pit of vipers. If you can stay sober at a comedy club, you'll be good.
3: I've had Joe call a few friends of mine to talk to them. Most of them are parents whose kids are struggling. I'm always a bit nervous when I recommend Joe because obviously his be fatter, do coke side, could eke out. But so far, he's only made people feel better and always makes himself available. But the piece of advice that he usually gives to people is that there's only so much he can do, or anyone can do. know, I've always described Joe's approach this way. Like, you know, if someone's hanging themselves, he can slide the stool underneath their feet, but they're responsible for taking the noose off. There
2: is only so much you can do, yeah, that's true. You can make offers to people. You can set boundaries with people. Um, you can practice self-care. You can't control addiction. Just can't do it. There's no, and I think that that's the, the big mistake that people make. It is not simple. It is very, very, very difficult. There are people, there are stages of addiction and there are people who are in late stages of it and they won't get better.
3: Joe a wonderful guy to have around even though he says some stuff that makes me wince. But so what if he's not cuddly? I mean, Joe helps people. Joe's committed to helping people, but he can only do it his way. Certainly not the easier, softer one. And I'm sure if he presented better or he wasn't as gruff, he'd probably have more clients, but I think that would make him uncomfortable. If he was inauthentic, his job would suffer, which would in turn have an effect on the greater good, which is what he's trying to improve. Joe also knows he can't save everyone. Some of his clients have died. Some of his friends have died. Being that close to all that death does leave a mark, even on someone as seemingly unflappable as Joe. He hasn't quit yet, though. This is his life's work, for better or for worse.
2: I definitely have gotten to the point of understanding how much larger addiction is than my ability to control it. I get that part of it now. So I don't have the, I should have this or I should have that. Like I really don't have that anymore. I do the best I can. And unfortunately it doesn't always work.
3: Sober companions can only do so much. Rehabs can only do so much. And friends and family can only offer love and support. But obviously that's not enough either. You can't love someone into sobriety. Also, it's September, so that means it's recovery month. And right now, I don't think there are ribbons or wristbands or any big unifying event like a road race, but I hope that will change. Because making the choice to recover and practice recovery makes many lives better and even saves a few. It's good to recognize that. It's great to remember that. Next time on Really Good Shares, we'll hear from my friend, Steve Wilson who was just a total dirtbag party guy I used to hang out with and who seemed destined for a life of squalor and sadness, who amazingly stopped drinking and started running. And he's truly one of the great stories and people that I've met along the way. Anyway, here's Swamp Dog fucking up Steely Dan in the best way possible.
1: Somebody Who can do the job for free When you need a bit of loving Cause your man is out of town That's the time you get me running And you know I'll be around I'm a fool to do your dirty work Oh yeah I don't want to do your dirty work no more I'm a fool to do your dirty work oh yeah
3: Really Good Shares is hosted by me, AJ Delario. We're produced by Julian Weller, Jackie Huntington, and Jessica Krynchich, with production assistance from Lindsey Hoffman. Our theme music is Everything You'll Ever Need by Swamp Dog. In this episode, Swamp covered Dirty Work by Steely Dan. Kind of covered Dirty Work, let's be honest. Our executive producers are myself and Julian Weller. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatigater and Bethan Macaluso. An extra special thanks to Joe Schrenk. He co-hosts the podcast each week with Amy Tresner called Rehab Confidential. So listen to that wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked what you heard here, check out thesmallbow.com. That's bow as in bow and arrow, B-O-W, cool. We'll be back with Steve Wilson, formerly Drunken Pile of Hair. And one of the truest inspirations to me in my recovery.
0: Imagine getting in a hot, stuffy car in the summer. You know how it cools off much faster when you roll down the windows first to get the hot air out? Well, that's exactly how an easy-breathe basement ventilation system works. Removing all the musty, damp, stagnant air and replacing it with fresher, cleaner, drier air. Take charge of your air with easy-breathe ventilation and get $250 off today. Ask about DIY kits. Visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com or call 866-822-7328. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% Cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at comma.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Boston Proper is for women who love distinctive style in styles that don't define them. Boston Proper designs are unique and made to fit flawlessly. Confident women wear Boston Proper as an expression of who they are, with chic, polished styling and unforgettable looks that get noticed anytime, every day, and on any occasion. When you want that certain something in everything you wear, wear Boston Proper. Shop at bostonproper.com and wear it like no one else.